Thank you, choir. If you would, while you're uh, being seated, go ahead and turn your, in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 1. This is the easiest turning your Bibles you're going to have maybe all year long. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of this big book that we call the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. As Adam mentioned, we're starting a brand new series today, and uh, so I'll share a little bit about that. It's going to span for four weeks, leading us up to just a couple of weeks or so before Easter, and uh, the name of the series is called The Big Story. So I want you to think for a moment about your life, whether that life is uh, comprised of uh, kind of a, a teen a number of years, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever. Maybe it's 20 plus, 30 plus, 60 plus, 80 plus, regardless of what that is. Think about the totality of your life, the years of life you've had on this earth. Now, I want you to think about summarizing your entire life story. And taking all of your life story with everything you've experienced, I want you to think about how would you summarize your life? How would you break it down and just give a synopsis of your life. Now, that's an overwhelming thought, isn't it? Because some of you, you're, you're already beginning to think through, like, where would I even start? Uh, what words would I use to even summarize? What would I pull out? What stories? Because there are so many different stories that, that, that you could pull out of your life. More than likely, what you would do is, I'm thinking, is that you'd probably break your life into components. When you think about a play, for example, you know, a play has different acts. Acts one, two, three, four, however many acts there are in a play. You would probably do something maybe similar to that, where you break your life down into acts. You know, maybe it'd be the early years, and you'd talk about how you were raised and where you were raised and just some of those details. And maybe it would be, uh, you know, say, the college years. Or some of you may want to leave the college years out. I don't know how your college years went. Uh, others, others of you would kind of move on to the work years or the career you know, years, what have you. And, and then maybe the family years or retirement years. You kind of break it down. And uh, some, of, some of your categories may be a little different. Maybe some categories of these were the years that went well. And then Acts 2, these were, or Act 2, these were the years that didn't go so well. Or these were the years when I walked with God, or Act 3, the, this was the season when I didn't walk with God, right? You're, everybody's story is going to be different, but you'd probably summarize it in what we would call a big story. Smaller parts with a lot of different stories that could be told, but it would just be the simple big story. So let me ask you another question. So then in that same train of thought, how would we tell the story of God? It's equally overwhelming to think about how we tell the story of God. I mean, after all, you could go thousands of different directions, thousands of different little kind of micro stories that you could tell, and, and yet I think we would handle it the same way. We would tell God's story by breaking it down into smaller pieces, kind of an act one, act two, act three, act four kind of a thing, and you would let that be the big story. It's what they call the meta narrative. It's the big story that overarches all the other smaller stories that could be told. Well, this, this morning, we're starting this brand new series called The Big Story. And that's exactly what we're going to aim to do. We're going to break down the story of God as we know it. And the good thing is, is we do know it because we have the Bible, a book that he wrote that helps us to understand it. And we're going to break down this, this story, we're going to call it the big story, into four different acts, so to speak. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to focus on this meta-narrative. And, and what you see on the screen here, let's go ahead and bring it back up again. The, these are four acts of this big story that we're going to look at. The, 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 the first act we're going to see starting today is creation. The second act is going to be the fall. The third act is going to be redemption. And then the fourth act is going to be restoration. And so there are thousands of stories we could break out of that uh, uh, about God, about who he is. And he's revealed these 
again, in his word, 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, and, and, and so many different smaller stories that encapsulate that to help us to see who God is. But for us, we're going to just tell the big story. And we're going to hit each of these components one a week starting today, looking at creation. And each of these components tell us something about God, tells us about his nature, tells us about how he acts. And here's the thing, whether or not God has always been a part of your story, maybe there were certain seasons of your life where God was not a part. I think by you being here today, unless you were bribed to come here and somebody's going to pay you off really well whenever this service is over, I think by virtue of the fact that you're here, it shows that at least at this stage in your life today, right, God is part of your story. But maybe he hasn't always been a part of your story. Maybe there were seasons in your life where God was not even on the radar. Maybe it was way back. Maybe it was fairly recently. But there was a stretch of life for you maybe where God wasn't even a thought. You just sort of lived however you wanted. You lived pursuing whatever you desired. And God didn't come into the picture until sometime later. Well, here's the thing. Whether or not God has been a part of your story, listen, you have always been a part of his. <laughs> and, and that's what we see in the Bible is that you've always been a part of God's story. All four of these components we're going to look at, whether it's creation or fall or redemption or restoration, you are a part of the story that God has written. And as we look at the big picture starting today, breaking out kind of these, these four acts, so to speak, of the story of God, what we're going to see is that you are woven through it all throughout. So let's bring up the graphic one more time, and I, I think there's another way that we can pitch this. If you look at creation, you can say, you can use another word there, you can say made, right? Instead of fall, you can say broken. Instead of redemption, you can say paid for, and instead of restoration, you can say fixed, or even better, replaced. And all of that is part of God's story and how he weaves it through your story ultimately as well. And so today we're going to start with act one in the big story, and it's going to be creation. Creation, and the, no better place for us to turn to than Genesis chapter one, verse one. And so this is going to be the verse we're going to focus on primarily today. We'll weave in some others as well. But Genesis chapter one, verse one is a great place to start. So let's go ahead and read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first sentence in this big gigantic book called the Bible is a verse that you've heard probably before. If you wanted to memorize a verse and have never memorized one, this is a good one to start because there is so much packed into this particular verse as we're going to see today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does it mean when it says in the beginning? Well, before we break that down, let's just remind ourselves of how we got the book of Genesis in the first place. So the book of Genesis, along with all the other books of the Bible, all 66 of them, we understand that God wrote. Internally, the Bible gives evidence of that. It testifies to the fact that it's God's word. Now, the way God wrote it was that he wrote it through people. And so what we have today is a Bible that we can trust, and I won't get into all of the manuscript evidence and that whole argument, but what we have is a book, unlike any other book in human history, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can trust what it says. And we have manuscripts that date back 
hundreds and hundreds of years that remind us that what we have today is what was written. And so God wrote this book. He wrote the book of Genesis included in that as well, but he wrote it through a man named Moses. And so the Holy Spirit would inspire Moses, the book of Genesis I'm talking about. Moses wrote the first five and a couple of Psalms. He didn't write the whole Bible, but he wrote the book of Genesis. And so even though Moses wrote it, we understand that it's God's word. And when Moses wrote these words in the beginning, what was he speaking about? He was not talking about in the beginning of of um of eternity, right? He was saying in the beginning of time as we know it. And this tells us a little something about God, that God is eternal. God is without beginning. God is without end. And when it says here in the beginning, again, it's talking about creation, not eternity. You can't find the beginning of eternity. I know that's a deep thought for 930 in the morning. You can't start at the beginning of eternity. There is no beginning of eternity. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. And so when it says here, in the beginning, it's talking about in the beginning of creation. He goes on in the fourth, or, or we find in the, in the next word, he, give, he introduces God, right? God is introduced in the story, four words in. In the beginning, God. And when God is spoken of here, whether it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or whether it's throughout the rest of this Bible, what we see is, again, that he is eternal. He is outside of his creation, and he has no beginning. He is without beginning, and he is without end. Now take a look at what it says in Psalm chapter 90. Ironically, this is a psalm that Moses wrote, Psalm chapter 90. And look at what it says in Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Moses, the man of God, verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. All right. So the picture here is that in the beginning, it's not speaking about the beginning of eternity, it's the beginning of creation. God, preexistent, eternal, a God who has all powerful, or who has all power. In the beginning, God created. Now, there are different words in the Genesis account of Genesis 1 and 2 that we can translate created or made. There are different Hebrew words for that. This is the Hebrew word bara. And the understanding here of bara is that it means to create out of nothing. That there was nothing pre-existing that was also eternal outside of God that God would use to create the heavens and the earth. It was created, as the Latin phrase would say, ex nihilo. It was created out of nothing. God did not need anything else to create. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is eternal. He created out of nothing. There's a little joke that tells a story about a fella who read Genesis 1 and 2, and he read specifically on day 6 of how God created Adam and Eve from the dust of the earth. He created Adam from the dust of the earth, Eve from his side. And so this fellow goes to God. This is a joke. This is not biblical. He goes to God and uh, he says, God, you know, I've been reading in your word, been reading in your book about how you created Adam from the dust of the earth. And I think I could do the same thing. It shouldn't be that hard. And, uh, and so I challenge you to a contest. And at that, the man bent down and he began gathering up some dirt because that's what God did when he created Adam. And as he began to gather up some dirt in his hand, God said, oh, no, 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 no. You get your own dirt. <laughs> God created out of nothing out of nothing, this is gonna be important for later down the road as we pull in some other things here. He created specifically out of nothing. Look at what it says. You can just read it on the overhead with me if you want. Hebrews chapter 11, deep in the New Testament. 
We find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Look at what it says. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that, listen to this, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And so when we go back to Genesis 1-1, when it has that Hebrew word for created, in the beginning, in the beginning of creation, God, all-powerful, eternal, pre-existent, outside of time, space, and matter, God created, it's understood here based on what Hebrew says, that he created what we see out of things which are not seen, right? That, that there was nothing in existence that God used to create the heavens and the earth. He spoke them into existence seven times in this account. We see the words, and God said. Right? He spoke them ultimately into existence. Six days of creation, God would create. Look over to Exodus chapter 20 if you'd like to turn with me. Otherwise, you can read on the overhead. There's a little bit of discussion both inside of Christian circles, well, mainly inside Christian circles. Those outside of, of um, a belief in creation don't care how many days God created because they don't believe in creation anyway. But for those who believe God created, there's this discussion about are the days literal 24-hour days? I would hold, and I think Scripture is really clear about it, that they were 24-hour days. They were literal 24-hour days. Look at what it says here. Moses is writing in Exodus uh, chapter 20. He's speaking, again, of he's about to speak about the, the, the Sabbath day, the seventh day. But look at how he phrases it. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. And then look at what he says next. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. How do we know that those six days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 are literal 24-hour days? Well, there are a lot of different things that give evidence of that. One, it says there was morning and evening the first day, morning and evening the second day. But right here, Exodus 20 gives full account. When God is talking about the Sabbath day, a literal day on a literal calendar, when you get to the Sabbath day, he says, take a rest. The, what, what, what Moses writes, what the Bible says to give that context is, in the same way God created in six days, six literal days, he says you need to observe the Sabbath. And so... God would create, and as we read through Genesis 1 and 2, we're not going to read all the way through those. Those are two chapters that in a lot of ways run parallel. We find that God creates. Genesis 1.1, it says he created the heavens and the earth. It's literal. It's not figurative. This is not mythological. This is literal. This is historical. He created the heavens. He created space. He created the earth. He created matter. Literal heavens, literal earth. But when you look through all the rest of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, you see specifically what he created. He created birds and fish and the seas and mountains. And he created for those five days. And on the sixth day, he created what we could say perhaps is the kind of the crowning achievement, so to speak. It, it would have been the creation of mankind himself. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what you and I do with Genesis 1-1 has a lot of bearing on how we read the rest of the Bible. Because if we don't hold to and adhere to and agree with and embrace Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the whole book, then we're not going to hold to 
and adhere to nor value or embrace anything in the rest of it either. It would make no sense. Because if in the beginning God did not create, if somehow you know, there, there's this alternative called evolution, if, if somehow we just evolved out of the primordial goo, right, and, and we just kind of moved up by process of, of um, natural selection, survival of the fittest to the point to where over billions of years now here we are, if that's what we believe and we discard Genesis 1-1, then there is really no room for a lot of other things that our culture holds to. Our, our, our culture, when a culture holds to a theory of evolution, it's not fair then when it also steals from God <laughs> to help make that happen. Let me give an example. There is no place in an evolutionary mindset for the whole concept of morality. Have you ever thought about that? There's no place for morality. If a person holds to, if a person says, you know what, I, I, I dismiss Genesis 1-1, I don't believe in God, or I don't believe he created, I believe that we, we came up through the evolutionary process, then why would you also have any sense of morality because there's no place in it? When you think about the most heinous of crimes that have ever been committed or the greatest of deception that's ever been pulled off, those who would discard Genesis 1-1 and hold to an evolutionary model should look at that if, they're, if they have integrity in their belief system. They should look at that and say, that's the way it works. Survival of the fittest, baby. You scheme and you deceive and you eliminate so that you can continue your existence. There's no room for morality in a model that discards God. There's no room for beauty in a model that discards God. It makes no sense. There's no reason for us to behold things and say that is beautiful, whether it's a sunset, whether it's new life, whether it's marriage, whether it's any other tangible or intangible object, right? In an evolutionary mindset, there is no place for beauty. And I know this is going deep, but I think it runs, it runs parallel with what we read here in Genesis 1.1. The reason we have morality is because there is a God who has existed for all of eternity, who has already determined, and even in he himself, dictates and embodies what good really is. That's why we have morality. That's why we can look at someone like Hitler and say, that is so incredibly evil what Hitler did. Why can we identify something as evil? Because we know what good is. God has put it inside of us because he is the embodiment of good. If that's not there, there is no perfect standard and all bets are off. We can do anything. You look as well, one of the one of the other things, when you look at kind of this evolutionary mindset as set up against creation as well, one of the things that I think evolutionists would have a hard time or the evolutionary thought would have a hard time being able to prove is um, the fact that our universe runs on constants that, have, that are unchanging, right? There are things that have been unchanged throughout human history. I mean, 212 degrees is still the boiling point of water, Always has been. 32 degrees is still the freezing point of water. Always has been. They've got tide charts that have already been printed and put out on, online or in print form already for months down the road. Tide charts. It's because we see in the future? No. It's because there's a, con there, there's a constant to our world, to this creation. Gravity always applies whether we believe it or not. Those are, 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 are examples of the, of the fingerprints of a designer, right? who put all of this into place. In addition to that, there's, there's a problem with evolution 
called irreducible complexity. And one of the things I read about this, I think it may have been Tim Keller, I can't remember, gave an example of a mousetrap. This is, this is interesting when you think about it. Um, I'm not going to ask how many of you have mousetraps in your home because probably we wouldn't want to admit to that here living on this island, I'm sure, but I think we've probably all had them. And, uh, and so when you think about a mousetrap, a mousetrap doesn't work when it's in process of being built. Right? It has to be complete for that mousetrap to work. It's a really interesting thought. It, it, it was like, well, we got the whole thing 90% built, but all we need is a spring. Well, that's not going to work. It's got to be completed. Well, we got everything in place, but all we need is that wood bra- ba- base to screw everything into, and then that mousetrap's going to work. It doesn't work that way. It's, 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 it won't function until the whole thing is complete. And yet what evolution says is that somehow life functioned all throughout the chain, <laughs> and it just sort of continued to climb up the ladder to the point to where now we have people, that even though we started with something much, much less. It doesn't work that way. The reason we have life is because there is a God not bound by time, space, or matter who is eternal, who has all power power that brought life into existence. Adam, and from Adam, Eve, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Act one in God's story is the story of creation. Look at what it says down in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Go down a little bit further. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, it's interesting. God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. When you go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, that word God in the Hebrew language is also plural. Shows us a little something else about who this God is. You'll never see the word Trinity in the Bible, and yet the concept of the Trinity is all throughout the pages of Scripture and absolutely explodes in the New Testament. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why does God speak here in Genesis 1.26? Let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It tells us about who God is, but it tells us about who we are as well, that we are image bearers of the God who created us. Where you sit today, no matter... What baggage may have been a part of your life, no matter what baggage is part of your life, no matter how much failure has been accumulated, no matter what you've accomplished or haven't accomplished or where you've been, what you've done, no matter any of that, you are an image bearer of God. God created you in his image. You have intellect, you have emotion, you have will, you have moral likeness to God. Now, as we'll see next week, sin has affected that. But you were created in the image of God of God. And God says very clearly in Genesis 1, 26, that that's the way that you have been created. You have been created in his image, designed to walk in relationship with him. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. There's a principle here. Principle number one, I'm going to give you a couple of these in the message today before I finish up. Principle number one, your life bears the beautiful marks of God's creative work. Your life as it sits right now bears the beautiful marks of God's creative work inside and out. Psalm chapter 139 verse 13 and 16 uh, through 16, David is writing 3,000 years ago Again, God inspired him. He writes, for you, speaking to God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, 
for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Your life bears the marks, the beautiful marks of God's creative work. Principle number two, his creation of you defines his purpose for you. Yeah, there have been a lot of books written. You can go to Barnes & Noble, you can go to Amazon, and you can Google, put in a search, the meaning of life, purpose of life, what's my purpose, and just scroll through books and books and articles that have been written about the purpose of life and how to find our purpose. And answering that question, what is my purpose? Listen, very simply put, is that our purpose, if, if we embrace and if we understand that our life comes because God has created us, and that our lives uh, bear the fingerprints of God's creative work, the beautiful marks of God's creative work. If we believe that and if we embrace that, then, then the next thing that we embrace ultimately is that the one who gave us life is the one who defines the purpose of our life. <laughs> it's, it's not like God created us and said, all right, get, get on out there, right? Go down there. Now, now find your own purpose. Now, now build your own life. Go get out there and make the best life you can make for yourself. That's not the way it works. God creates us, and he puts us in this world that he created, and then he defines the purpose for us. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul is writing here. He says, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so God's purpose for us, this overarching purpose that when he created us, in act one, creation, he created everything we see he didn't create himself he's eternal everything else we see he created he brought into existence and ultimately including you and when he put you and he put me and he put all of us on this earth he also defined the re, the, the, the the parameters the, the purpose of our life and the purpose overarching is not to build a career it's not to, to build a successful family it's not to accomplish great things or, or exceed what our, the previous generation did it's not any of that that may be a part of it that he leads us to do but the overarching purpose of our life is to live to his glory it's to give his, him glory, right? We're trophies. We're trophies of his grace. So when people see us, they get to see what he looks like. We live in a way. Again, going back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, to where we conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We put him on display. We show this world in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in the, amongst the people that you've never met, that you cross paths with. We show them what he looks like by living to his glory. And that's the purpose, ultimately, that he gave us. And so what are, what are some of the implications of this? So if it's, I like looking at implications. That if all of this is true, then there are some implications that spin out of this that I think we need to do business with. I want to give you about three of them. First of all, first implication of Act 1, creation, is that your life has immense value. I touched on this already. I want, to, I want to just emphasize this again for just a moment, that you may have come through stages in your life. Part of your story may, may be... Uh, a season of life that you went through where you felt devalued. Maybe there was a relationship that became broken. And I have no clue what that was. Maybe there was a relationship that was broken. Maybe there was a failure in your life. Maybe there was a regret that's part of your life that you've allowed to be part of the big story that defines you, right? You're defined by that failure. You're defined by that regret. You're defined by that broken relationship in your life, whether it was a a parent who disowned you, 
or some other relationship that fell apart. Maybe you've defined yourself by that. But what, what I think needs to begin to happen now is not to define yourself by that, but to define yourself by what God says about you and that your life does bear the fingerprints of who he is and his creative work in your life and that your life has immense value simply because of who gave you this life, who created it. Implication number two is that God also desires relationship with you, right? We can't just sail through life saying, hey, I'm of great value, and then we get the big head, and like, don't you know who I am, right? I bear the fingerprints of God. Well, so does everybody else. But we also want to see that not only does God give us value, but he also desires relationship with us. Let's roll through a few passages of Scripture here real quickly. Psalm chapter 147 verse 3. Psalm 147, verse 3. Listen to what the psalmist says here, <clears throat> and we're talking about relationship with God. He says in 147, verse 3, he says, he heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. That's what God, our creator, longs to do, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up our wounds. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. I love the phrasing of this, and I think we've got it in the, uh, the English Standard Version here. I love the wording of it says, he found him, speaking of Israel, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him and he cared for him and he kept him as the apple of his eye. What an awesome picture that is, that God in this context looked at the people of Israel, but I believe he also looks at you today as one of his children and he sees you as the apple of his eye. Now you may have never had that in your life. You may have had a dad that walked out on you. You may have had a mom that was not there for you. You may have had a spouse abandon you. You may have been through hurt and you may have had so much trouble in your life, but you've never thought about the simple fact that the God who brought you into this world, who saw you when he formed you in your mother's womb, who marked out the days for your life even before one of them began, who breathed into existence and spoke into place, everything we see with this world also brought you into this life and he created you and he fashioned you and his fingerprints are all over you and he looks at you as the apple of his eye. That is an awesome truth. That's how God looks at you. He desires that kind of relationship with you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. What are the implications of Act 1, creation? That your life has immense value. That God desires relationship with you. But then finally... Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. He's the greatest treasure of all. How has God revealed himself, this God who created, who brought us into existence? It would only make logical sense, wouldn't it, that this God who created would want to reveal himself. And he has. <laughs> he created himself, our retina doesn't create him, he, he revealed himself through Jesus when he walked this earth in human history. And he's revealed himself through his word. That we have the privilege of opening and reading even still today. There's an interesting passage, one of the parables that Jesus would tell in Matthew chapter 13. And he tells a story here, Jesus does in his ministry. He tells the story in this parable of the kingdom of God, heaven. Matthew 13 verse 44. It's just one verse long, this little parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and he hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has. And he buys that field. 
Jesus is saying the reign of God in a person's life, the kingdom of God, is a treasure for us. If you've given your life to Jesus, you, you hold that treasure, right? You have that treasure waiting for you. But I think in a sense, we can stretch that out just a little bit. Because I think when we think about heaven, a lot of times we think about heaven as a place, and it is. But more importantly, it's also, it's, it's a person, so to speak. You know, when I was in college, I went to college here for two years, and I transferred to Georgia. And, um, man, I enjoyed, I enjoyed coming home. You know, four hours away, I didn't come home every weekend. But when I did, I was always excited, and I, and I was always looking to that next trip home because we had such a close family. And when I came home, it wasn't because I couldn't wait to get back to the house, <laughs> to the place. I can't wait to get back to 1910 Idaho Avenue. It had nothing to do with the place. It had everything to do with the people. When I went to seminary, now Susie was in the picture. We were dating. I'm now six hours away in the Raleigh area. Man, I couldn't wait to come home. And it wasn't because I wanted to get back to the place where I was born and raised. It was because of a person. I couldn't wait to get back to spend a little bit more time with her. You see, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field that when a man found it, he went and he sold everything that he had just to buy the field to get the treasure. But when we think about it, the treasure is not even the eternal life and it's not getting to heaven. The treasure is the person, Jesus himself. And when we realize that he created us and that he created us for a purpose, he created us for the design, the greatest purpose of all is that we know him in relationship, through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Act two is the fall. We're going to look at that next week, that our sin broke our relationship with him, our fellowship with him, and it required redemption, payment, for us to be restored. But we don't have to wait for message number two, three, or four in this series. If you've never given your life to Jesus and your sin has separated you from God, then today, right where you sit, if you so choose, you can say, God, my creator, I know I've sinned, and I receive Jesus to be my savior, to forgive and to take over, and he'll do it. There are three big questions in life that we have to answer before our lives come to an end. Number one, where did I come from? Number two, why am I here? And number three, where am I going when I die? Those are the three big questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going when I die? Act one, creation, Genesis 1-1, answers the first two. Where did I come from? I came from the creative work of God. Why am I here? I'm here to live life to the glory of the one who created me. And where am I going when I die? That has everything to do with your decision about the role of Jesus Christ in your life. Many of you know him, and you know where you're going. And if not, you can know him today by surrendering your life and asking him to forgive and to save. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your story 
comprised of so many smaller stories along the way. So many smaller stories we could pull into this, Lord, and, and it would take years and years and years to tell all of them, just the ones in the Bible. But God, the big story, the big picture is that you first of all created us. You, God, without beginning, without end, a God who is personal with all power, has created us. And even though we've fallen and sinned, and even though that, that, that sin required payment, Lord, redemption, at the, at the cost of Jesus dying in our place, that when we know you, that our relationship with you can be restored. That is the big story. Lord, it starts with realizing that our lives are what they are because you've given them to us. And to you, we're accountable. You are the authority. Lord, we're to live life on your terms, not ours. But God, we thank you that when we do that, that you, Jesus, have told us that in you is life and life abundantly. Lord, that you're not a God who is against us. You're a God who wants the best for us. And even though we live in a fallen world and the fallenness of this world often invades our lives to where we suffer and we struggle and we hurt at times, we thank you that you're a God who binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted, that even when we feel like that candle about to go out, that you don't extinguish that flame, Lord. You keep us and you hold us and you, you, you take care of us and you meet our needs. And through a relationship with Christ, God, you'll take care of us for all of eternity, and there will be a place where we'll go, where we will be in your presence forever. And God, it all started because you gave us the lives we have. So many implications, God. Our lives are valuable. Lord, so many implications that relate to how we treat one another. Every life carries dignity. No matter if we disagree, no matter how old or how young. But God, thank you that most of all, every life bears your creative marks. Lord, may we walk in, in, in unity with you for who you are through our relationship with Jesus. And may we see the value that our lives carry because you, God, have made us. Help us to live in light of that, we pray. In Jesus' name.